So we're at a good-sized rural hospital. We have lots of support. Our ICU team can handle just about everything, especially with the help of our consultants. I guess the only thing that we can't do is ECMO. But your hospital system has ECMO capabilities at the downtown hospital. Not only do they do ECMO, they do it really well. Over 100 runs a year, a mix of VA and VV. So when are we supposed to transfer this patient downtown? Immediately? I mean, she's young. She's got H1N1 ARDS. But she's only on 70% and 14 a peep. We have so much room to go with oxygenation. We haven't even tried paralytics or proning yet. Who knows? Tomorrow AM, she could be down to just 50% and 8 a peep. Or maybe we'll walk in tomorrow morning and find her on 100% over 20. Maybe I would have wished that I would have transferred her yesterday. But then again, the big house is usually full anyways. And we can't just send every severe arts patient downtown only to not need ECMO and take up all their beds. ARDS is supposed to be my bread and butter. We're intensivists. Am I letting my ego play into this at all? So you make a call and wonder if your decision was the right one. Only time will tell. What's up, Pwncasters? Your two favorite co-hosters are back on the Podwaves this week, digging into a topic that is always interesting and sometimes controversial. That's right. We're talking about ECMO. We also have Chad Case with us, our local system ICU director. We're excited to have him on the podcast as he brings a wealth of knowledge on a variety of issues. He's one of the most passionate people I've met in intensive care medicine. He's constantly trying to improve himself and our practice. So we'd like to start by saying we are definitely not ECMO experts by any stretch of the imagination. At our hospital system, we transfer care to the ECMO team in the CVICU once the decision has been made to cannulate the patient. So, Dr. Case, while being an all-around ICU guru, you aren't an ECMO expert either. Can you tell our listeners why we have been sort of working on this stuff and what we're talking about in this podcast episode? What we have been trying to do over the last year or so is just standardize the process by which we assess patients who have ARDS, Uh, get a sense of where their disease state is, and then think through in a rational way uh, where we think they're headed. When we have looked at that, the local intensivist team obviously wants to maximize their scope of practice, and the hospitals all want to be able to care for all the patients that they can locally in their hospital. But everybody understands that there are patients that are going to benefit from ECMO support, and if proning is insufficient to help them uh, uh, maintain an adequate oxygenation, then looking at movement to a site where they can be placed on ECMO is felt to be in the patient's best interest. Let's go back a bit to the basics for just a brief second before discussing this, in case there are a few listeners who don't know what we're talking about. ECMO. That's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's a form of extracorporeal, literally out-of-body life support using cannulae connected to a circuit. The circuit pumps blood through an oxygenator and back into the patient, ultimately helping us augment cardiac output, oxygenation, and sometimes even ventilation. ECMO science obviously goes way deeper than this, so please refer to our show notes for some great resources if you want to learn more. You can imagine that something as aggressive as ECMO comes with a host of complications. And these complications include bleeding due to anticoagulation the patient needs for the circuit, limb perfusion problems, a whole host of other issues. Putting somebody on the circuit is a major decision that isn't without complications. 
That being said, the complications have gone down considerably at quality ECMO centers, such as ours, as they have garnered more experience. In addition, the equipment in ECMO circuits have improved considerably. I think a lot of people don't realize that ECMO has been around for decades, and they've always had a variety of applications for ECMO, particularly in pediatrics. It was a little slower to catch on in adults, but became more globally relevant during the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. Out of this era was born a significant amount of research on the role of ECMO in ARDS. Our center's pretty good when it comes to ECMO. We do over 100 runs a year, like we said before. Uh, And actually, that's pretty high volume-wise in the ECMO world. We do both VA and VV, but we sort of have more of a lean toward VA ECMO because of our heavy cardiac population. Today, we are going to focus on ARDS patients who could benefit from VV ECMO. Let's start by discussing the CSER trial. So the CSER trial came out in The Lancet in 2009. It's actually one of the first few RCTs in the ECMO world. CSER enrolled 180 patients in England from 2001 to 2006. Inclusion criteria included a Murray score of greater than 3 or a pH less than 720. From there, patients were randomized to a control group, which was staying at their current tertiary hospital. They recommended that these tertiary hospitals use low-pressure, low-tidal volumes, but they didn't require specific protocols. The other half of the patients were randomized to the ECMO arm, And these patients were flown into Glenfield Hospital in Lancaster, and they were taken care of by the ECMO team. I think that's Lee Caster, Jeremy. I don't really know. I'm not British. (laughs) I think it's important to highlight that not every patient in the ECMO arm actually required ECMO. 75% of patients in that ECMO arm received ECMO support, but the other 25% didn't actually end up on the circuit. Their results were 63% of patients in the ECMO arm survived to six months, without disability, compared to 47% in the control arm. The Murray scores are an average of four major data points. That is PF ratio, PEEP, quadrants of your chest X-ray that are affected with the maximum being four, and lung compliance. A four is the highest you can get, and patients with a score of three or greater were enrolled in the study. So we have the Murray calculator both linked in our show notes, and it's the first thing that comes up if you just Google Murray score. So if you're ever wondering, you can just Google it. That's still how our team routinely calculates Murray scores. Our primary issue as a multi-hospital system with a multi-hospital pulmonary and critical care team is how do we facilitate all of our team members at all of these facilities to have access to ECMO if it's needed? Keeping in mind bed capacity at our downtown facility, we can't just send every severe ARDS patient to the big house. We would be overloaded with ARDS patients from the system. We made it our team's mission to help our staff determine when a patient could benefit from ECMO and when they should transfer them. We should also say that our hospital system does not remotely cannulate patients. So we don't have a team that's able to leave their facility, go cannulate a patient, and bring that patient back while on the circuit. So patients who would need ECMO need to be stable enough to leave to transfer to our downtown facility the conventional way, which sort of adds a layer of complexity to this whole issue. We are asking the system to call the centralized phone number for ECMO consultation. So Dr. Case, when they call this central number, who are they going to get on the phone? They're patched in with a pulmonary physician as well as a interventional cardiologist and a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, all of which are Uh, trying to figure out what is the best approach for care in that particular patient. 
If it's clear the patient does not need to be cannulated, then having an ARDS patient on the pulmonary critical care team as the attending group makes the most sense. But if, in fact, they need to move forward with urgent cannulation to be placed on ECMO support, then that's where the cardiovascular ICU team really takes over. And if it was clear-cut and we knew the answer for every case, it would be easy. Uh, But I find we're all working through right now who's the right person to field the call and make the decision and how the other team members can support all of those physicians and APPs making those difficult calls and speak with one voice about what's best for the patient. Dr. Case, what was the interdisciplinary ECMO team able to find as far as transfer triggers? There's no clear guideline consensus on that, and the people who we speak to frequently cite the need for clinician judgment as the predominant theme of how one makes decisions in these circumstances. There's the PF ratio, but then there's also the presser requirements of the patient and their acidosis. And so we can't use one variable to help us make a decision about stability for transport. When considering transferring patients who are sick with severe ARDS, how do we know who is too sick to transfer without requiring remote or mobile ECMO cannulation? Is there any data to sort of back this up? There are some programs that are circling around PF ratios in the 60 to 70 range as cutoffs for stability for transport. But again, I would say all of these programs would say that's uh, got to be taken case by case, and you have to take into account many other factors. How does the transport vent figure into that? It's clear that if you're on a high amount of ventilator support and your transport vent is incapable of delivering anywhere near that level of support, that if you're not paying attention to that, it can create patient safety concerns. And so having the knowledge about who is transporting your patient, how they're going to transport the patient, and what's the level of ventilator support that your patient is going to have access to is something we're now much more focused on. So to summarize what Dr. Case is saying, He and I have spent a lot of time looking into the data, and there's just not a lot of good data around this. There's some small trials, really more case-based trials, looking at remote cannulation and what the complication rate of transfer on remote ECMO is, which is really low. And there's a couple observational studies on complication rates transporting for conventional ventilators, and of course you have the Caesar complication rate data, and that's really about it. There's no major big trials on this. How did Caesar transfer patients, and what did they do, and how did they do? Caesar transferred patients by conventional ventilation. They did not utilize mobile ECMO, and of the 90 patients they transferred to Glenfield, two died and transferred, so that's 2%. One of those was a oxygen malfunction issue, and one of those was massive pulmonary hemorrhage. So out of that 2%, you could argue potentially both of those as being not necessarily complications of not transferring without ECMO. The oxygen would have ran out with the ECMO circuit potentially. You know, this is all speculation. Massive pulmonary hemorrhage, hard to treat in either scenario as well. Some of the PEDS ECMO data... According to ELSO, the complication rate is about 2 to 10% conventional ventilator transport. 
In terms of uh, considering ECMO for our patients with severe ARDS, there are several really helpful guidelines from ELSO, which is the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. And uh, they're actually the foundation of our system ECMO guidelines. Yeah, a good rule of thumb that's mentioned in ELSO is you should consider ECMO if their mortality risk with any illness is 50% or greater, and ECMO is indicated when that risk of mortality reaches 80%. So consider a 50% actually pull the trigger if it's 80%. Exactly, exactly. Um, So just uh, for those of you listeners out there, the ELSO database mortality rate for ECMO, for all comers to ECMO, is actually 50%. So that's where that 50% cutoff sort of comes from. And according to ELSO, there's actually technically no absolute contraindications for ECMO. At our center, we consider certain patients to be high risk for cannulation. So we think about absolute contraindications for anticoagulation, maybe recent CNS injury or expanding hemorrhage somewhere that we can't control, or maybe they have an irreversible condition that will ultimately lead to their demise anyway, like an end-stage malignancy or end-stage organ failure. We will list those and the relative contraindications in the show notes. So let's go back to Caesar. You have a patient with a Murray score of greater than three. Are they ready for ECMO? I mean, what does a Murray score of greater than three really mean for us? What we found is by screening all of our patients with ARDS and Murray scores of three or more, that it triggers a conversation between the care team, oftentimes the APP and the physician, about what is going on with the patient and where is the patient's disease trajectory headed. So I view the Murray trigger just like a VAE. It doesn't mean your patient has VAP. It doesn't mean your patient needs ECMO. It just tells the team, Go back and look at this patient a second time and, dis- and decide, am I optimized? Have I done everything I can for this patient where they're at right now? Many times, if appropriate interventions are started, the oxygenation can significantly improve. And oftentimes, the PF ratios can significantly get better over a quick period of time with the standard implementation of lung protective ventilation and adequate sedation and occasional paralytic use for this patient population. So the other thing we do see happen from time to time at some of the uh, level two facilities is is maybe on day shift someone was 70% and 14 and the, and the team felt like it was well within their capabilities to handle. And then for whatever reason, uh, night shift was busy or they didn't get notified and the patient ends up on 100% and 20 a peep when the team rolls in the next day and then they're kind of a little bit, you know, not a ton, but a few hours behind the eight ball of calling the ECMO team. And, and most of the time our clinician's intuition on when a patient needs to be transferred is dead on. They, they catch the sick young people. Um, but there's every now and then there's that patient that sneaks through. We've had lots of dialogue with trying to be more proactive at identifying ARDS patients early making sure their own best practice care pathways and order sets, and having a discussion with our ECMO team members about ECMO candidacy, even if we don't feel that they need ECMO support. That helps guard against the 2 a.m. decompensation where you're then the physician on call and you're having to debate if the patient is a candidate for ECMO or not rather than just when to put the patient on ECMO-level support. 
So we have Dr. Vivek Rajakupal here with us. He's actually, interestingly, the first physician in our hospital system who put someone on ECMO and one of our key ECMO physicians here. And we're going to run some cases by him and get his opinion. So hey, Dr. Rajakupal, I'm John Heisler, one of the Southside guys down here. I'm taking care of a 26-year-old African-American female. She was originally admitted with septic shock, thought to be due to pyelonephritis. She was volume resuscitated like normal. Once she was admitted to the ICU, however, she developed septic shock requiring central line, a couple pressors. From there, her her oxygenation worsened. She ended up on BiPAP at 100% about 10 hours into her ICU stay. At that point, she was intubated. Her initial PF ratio was 67. From there, we sedated her deeply and paralyzed her and went ahead and ordered a prone bed. At the point I'm calling you, we're about 15 hours into her stay. She's been on the vent for about three hours. Her current FiO2 is 80%, PEEP of 16. Her current PF ratio is 90. Our prone bed is still on the way. We haven't gotten it yet. So we're really early in the case we know, but we wanted to go ahead and call since she's young and pretty sick and get your opinion. Thanks, John. I appreciate really, I really appreciate you calling me so early because uh, it is important. She's young, um, and we have a lot of opportunity to help her. Looking at her, her she's got very significant, obviously, respiratory failure. And uh, but what's encouraging to me, at least right now, is that her PF ratio started at sixty-seven. It's it's already improved with ninety with conventional therapy. So my gut feeling here is that yes, you know, she could. Go, go the other way again, in which case we really need to consider ECMO. But I'm hopeful, based on her trajectory, that she's going to continue to improve. We won't need to do that. If we need to do that, we can transfer expeditionally, and we'll all be aware of her and be able to provide her venous ECMO. And, and certainly, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's a, a transfer might entail some degree of risk. So I'm encouraged with what you guys are doing. We're going to keep uh, in close contact with you and see how the next 12 hours go. Okay. So you want to get us get her on the prone bed, diurese or some, and see how she does? Yes, I think so. I think, again, if you look at, particularly if you look at the data involving ECMO, even the CSER trial, most of these folks that were put on ECMO, they had failed conventional therapy after a certain period of time. Actually, in Caesar is more than 24 hours. Now, I, I would recommend a shorter period of time than that, given that how young she is and otherwise healthy. But certainly, I think if she is improving over the next uh, 12 hours, there's no reason to transport and do this prematurely. Breaking out of character a bit, just having conversation. I think this case, like we were talking about, kind of gets at the crux of the matter that a lot of our people are thinking about when they're on the south side and and i've got this young girl it's really early it's the middle of the night do i go ahead and call the ecmo team do i kind of wait and see how she does fearing that in the morning when everyone comes in she's on 100 percent and 20 and and we're having to intermittently bag her um, so i'm glad we talked about this case so that you felt like they called at a reasonable time okay to call at three in the morning only a couple hours on the vent I think it should always be be okay to call in a situation like this because, you know, let's say f- five hours from now she pops a pneumo and now we're bagging her and we're everybody, it's an extremis. At this point, you know, the ECMO team will be aware. We'll be talking to our ECMO coordinator. We'll be making sure that we have circuits. There are lots of sort of preparations that we can do ahead of time. So I have a 78-year-old female here. She has a history of gold stage D COPD with an extensive smoking history. 
She has ARDS. Essentially, two to three days ago, she was admitted by internal medicine with presumed COPD exacerbation. Now it's sort of looking like she has pneumonia, renal failure, and volume overload. Um, she was intubated because she became obtunded on the floor. And now we have her on the vent. She's on 70% of FiO2 and 12 of PEEP. We haven't been able to make any headway in weaning. Her PF ratio is still, you know, about 110 or so. She's on ArtsNet protocol. Um, we are going to pull the trigger on a prone bed and paralytics. But after a long discussion with the family, they want to pursue, you know, full aggressive medical support. And so we, for completeness, want to get an evaluation for ECMO for this patient. No, thanks for your call. I think this is one of those really challenging cases where you know that her risk of dying from respiratory failure is quite high. And so we do the best we can with supportive care. And since we have the technology, namely ECMO, we are left with these quandaries. What do we do with patients like this? Because this is not a very young patient, and she has numerous comorbidities. We're talking gold C, gold D, excuse me, COPD. She is on home oxygen. She's, I'm sure, quite debilitated most of the time. And in general, the, the nice thing about this is there is an art to medicine. There's also a bit of science that can inform us. And you can look at some scoring systems. One is, will is someone a candidate for ECMO? Namely, are they failing conventional therapy? And you can use something called the Murray score. The Murray score, at least in the CSER trial, was at least three then they were considered someone that was at very high risk of dying from acute respiratory failure and merited ECMO consideration. On the other hand, if you have tons of comorbidities, maybe ECMO is futility. And there's another score called the REST score, R-E-S-P, and you can use that based on comorbidities to say that, look, this person, in her case, she has a RESP score of negative 2 to negative 3, which means that her survival is going to be probably 20% or less, even on ECMO. But even more than that, we have lots of data that patients such as this do not have, even if they are part of the 20% of survivors, they don't have a meaningful quality of life after being on ECMO. Invariably, what would happen is she would need a tracheostomy, she would need to go to an LTAC, she would really not be living independently anymore. So based on all of these things, I do not think she's an ECMO candidate. Now, Sometimes the family still wants to transport to a center that is ECMO available because they want closure. I have no problems with such a thing. And she can come here. We can evaluate her. And after talking to her, we're very likely going to say, look, we, uh, we should not be doing ECMO in this case, and let's continue supportive care. So again, kind of getting out of character a bit, do you think that there's value in even these patients who are kind of borderline to get the official opinion of uh, sort of an ECMO expert on the case? I think it's, honestly, I think it is helpful. In, in all of these fields, the technology and the data are constantly evolving. So I'll tell you, you know, maybe two years ago, there might be patients who would be considered non-ECMO candidates. And in the intervening time, there are going to be new uh, case studies and other reports saying that it is feasible. I'll give you a good example. Septic shock in general was thought to be a no-no for ECMO. People thought, well, these it's really a vasodilatory problem, it's an infectious problem. And yet we have more and more data coming out of the ELSO registry, even out of centers like France, where they've done, now, finally selected patients in septic shock who have a singular focus that can be fixed, 
and they have shown encouraging results on venoarterial ECMO. Not just garden variety septic shock. I'm talking septic shock, you're maxed on impressors, this sort of thing. And in our own experience, we've, we've seen that. So originally in our ECMO program, septic shock was an exclusion to veno-arterial ECMO, and it's no longer an exclusion. It's a relative contraindication. Uh, so because of those things, I really think it takes a team to, you know, it, some people are clearly candidates, some people are clearly not candidates, but I would say the, a big proportion of those fall in that big, broad, gray middle. And that's where we need a team to really look at these and, and see if they're candidates or not. And those calls are always good calls. I did want to ask you another question about septic shock and ARDS together and being on multiple pressors. Those patients, do they do well on VV ECMO to a point? It's a great question. If, if you are on what we know is if you're on really high setting of the ventilator, we know physiologically, we have got good studies on this, that you have decreased return of the right ventricle, you have right ventricular dysfunction, and that is part of what's driving the presser need. So what's interesting is when folks are really, really sick with ARDS and you start getting on pressors, that's a really bad sign because what's happening is the heart, particularly the right side of the heart, is being crushed by the in- incredibly high intrathoracic pressures. So you put them on VV ECMO, a lot of times you'll find that the presser requirements really come down quite substantially. So we're moving on to case three. So Dr. Roger Kapal, I've got a 40-year-old African-American male with HIV and a history of drug abuse. He is on ARVs, though. Shows up to the ED with difficulty breathing. While he's in the ED, he requires intubation due to becoming apneic. His initial vent settings are 80% FiO2 and 8 of PEEP. Uh, but the initial team felt like we were, were able to wean. He did have some bibasal infiltrates on his chest X-ray, but relatively mild in comparison to some of our patients. We discussed with his wife for a long time, uh, and she ultimately revealed that he did smoke crack the night before and couldn't stop coughing, which led to him coming to the ED. Initially, we were working him up for PJP, other infectious diseases. During his stay, he actually had an acute respiratory arrest, desaturated down to 65%, ultimately disconnected from the vent, was bagged back up to 100%, did require one round of ACLS, though, from that arrest. Essentially, after ROSC, he was a different patient on 100% FO2 with 20 a PEEP, significantly worsened bilateral infiltrates in an initial PF ratio after arrest of 105. He was bronched. We deeply sedated him and paralyzed him. But at this point, we're calling you to see if he's an ECMO candidate. So I think there there are obviously some very concerning signs here. He is on a lot of FiO2, a lot of PEEP. PF ratio is less than 150. It's, it's in the low 100s. And what most disturbingly is during an acute episode of hypoxemia, he actually had an arrest. And so this is a very sort of dangerous situation. And this is the kind of person where I wouldn't be waiting 12, 24, 36 hours to make sure he's turning around. This would be a situation of, is he getting better within the next six hours? If he is with conventional therapy, then we keep following him very closely. If he's not, this is the kind of guy that I would pull the trigger and say, look, we need to send him to an ECMO center for consideration of VV ECMO. At that point, he would meet criteria for ECMO cannulation. And as you recall, despite some of the comorbidities, you can calculate his predicted survival based on the RESP score, R-E-S-P. His RESP score is 4, which means that amazingly his predictive survival is at least 60%. 
Now, let me back up a little bit. There's a little bit of, maybe give you a little bit of social commentary. All of us have biases, whether we want to admit it or not. And there are patients that can trigger those biases. So in this case, you look at this gentleman, you say, well, he's got HIV, he's history of drug use, he's smoking crack. I mean, what automatically comes into our minds, and sometimes we verbalize, is this is not a model citizen, this is a frequent flyer. We use those pejorative terms, and that really biases us. But in a sense, what that does is that violates our social contract with people. That violates why we do what we do what we've been called to do. And we have to restrain ourselves a little bit. Now, these scoring systems can help us bring some science to this to say, look, despite everything, he could have a very meaningful survival. And this is also where calling an ECMO physician and having a team discuss this is helpful because maybe we're all biased. We can be biased in different ways. But together, hopefully, we can get closer to the truth and ultimately the best thing for any particular individual. Yeah, I think it's a great point to just uh, always remember that ECMO is is very much a multidisciplinary conversation. And so you're never wrong to call and get a, a full team's opinion on if, if your patient's a candidate or not. Awesome. Anything else you want to say while we got you recorded? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think it, this is a, a really exciting time for ECMO for the community in general it's humbling but it it really should be a multidisciplinary approach there again maybe biases is the wrong word to use maybe expertise and passions from all different types of specialties and when you're talking about something as complicated as this endeavor to maximally serve the public good there are many many patients out there that could potentially benefit from ECMO but are never even considered for ECMO And that call is never made. So, you know, I wonder how many of those calls could have been made. And so it's very valuable to think about it and all of us to come together as a team and community. That's awesome. I think that was our ending. (laughs) 